This morning, I'd like you to turn to Ephesians chapter 5, please. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 5. That's what we're going to be studying from today. As we get to this passage, it's another one of those complicated Pauline passages that goes in all kinds of different directions. He's going to give us a bunch more do's and don'ts than he even gave us last week. But, but what I want you to see this morning, you've already got a preview of that, is a, a picture that I saw this week on Facebook that really sums up this, this passage. Now show me the picture if you would. I mean, here's a picture that sums up exactly what we're going to see in this passage. Now, many of you may remember the guy there. That is Micah Harris. Used to live here. He was a weatherman for Channel 8 and a member here at Landmark. Since he's moved to Lexington, Kentucky, he's become a father. And that's his son, Max. How many of you dads have had that experience with those little play lawnmowers? Anybody else? I can still remember when we lived on Brevard Avenue, and we had a big oak tree, and I was circling around. There was Lincoln right behind me with his little play lawnmower. Some of them actually made bubbles. But I love about this picture is this is the core of what Paul is saying to us in this passage of how our life should look. It's about us following our Father. It's about us adoring our Father. But even beyond that, it's about our Father adoring us. I mean, I know as a dad, when I experienced that, that was a joyful moment. And I know, just talking to Micah this week, that was a joyful moment for him. And that's the core of what Paul's saying. Look at Ephesians 5, verse 1 and 2. This is right in the middle of the passage. And this is where he says, imitate God, therefore, in everything you do, because you are his dear children. Live a life filled with love, following the example of Christ. He loved us and offered himself as a sacrifice for us, a pleasing aroma to God. The core of everything Paul's going to ask us to do is that God loves us as dear children. And that Jesus gave his life for us. What the challenge of this passage is not for you just to stop doing some things in your life, even though we're going to get very specific today about four things that always trip us up. It's not about that. It truly is about you and I imitating God, being like him. And the four things we will discuss are things that are unlike God. Now, last week, we used this little graph about the why and the what and the how. And the point we made last week is a a list of do's and don'ts, a list of commandments is never sufficient on its own to motivate you. If only commandments could change you, then the old law would have worked and all we'd have needed the Ten Commandments. But they couldn't change you. Now, what changed in the New Covenant is we found out more than ever the why. You you see, if you're going to live for God, you've got to wake up every morning knowing the why of your life. You've got to know what motivates you to want to follow. And what motivates us in the picture today is that we have a loving Father who gave His only Son to die in our place so that we could have life. And so our why is a response to that. And so we begin to answer the why question. And we begin to change. Now let me tell you how I see this today. How many of you know the golden rule? Raise your hand. Say it with me. Do unto others, you would have them do unto you. I'm going to teach you this morning what I call the improved golden rule. Can you believe that? There is an improvement in this passage. 
Here it is. Show it on the screen. The improved golden rule is to do unto others as God has done unto you. Now say that with me. Do unto others as God has done unto you. Because that's the lifting of the standard. In the Old Testament, people were taught to love each other. That wasn't you. But what was new was that we were to love each other as Christ has loved us. And so we have this new and improved golden rule that says, the standard of my behavior, I treat other people the way God has treated me. So let's go to our passage today. Actually, we're going to go back to Ephesians chapter 4 in verse 29. And we're going to be looking for some violations, honestly, of what I call this new golden rule. Some, some, some ways that we get tripped up in being like God. Let's start in verse 29. Do not use foul or abusive language. Let everything you say be good and helpful so that your, your words will be an encouragement to those who hear them. And do not bring sorrow to God's Holy Spirit by the way that you live. Remember, he has identified you as his own, guaranteeing that you will be saved on the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness and rage, anger, harsh words and slander, as well as all types of evil behavior. Instead, be kind to each other, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God through Christ has forgiven you. Now, stop here for a moment with me. Do you recognize that chapter divisions were not originally in the Bible, right? Some man came along to help us know how to find things and put chapter divisions. And sometimes they royally blow it. This is one of the worst in all the Bible. There should not be a chapter division between verse 32 of chapter 4 and verse 1 of chapter 5 because it flows from one to the other. What's he say? Forgive one another just as God through Christ has forgiven you. This now makes more sense. Imitate God, therefore, in everything you do because you are his dear children. Live a life filled with love, following the example of Christ. He loved us and offered himself as a sacrifice for us, a pleasing aroma to God. And then he gets pretty stout here. Let there be no sexual immorality, impurity, or greed among you. Such sins have no place among God's people. Obscene stories, foolish talk, and coarse jokes, they're not for you. Instead, let there be thankfulness to God. You can be sure that no immoral, impure, or greedy person will inherit the kingdom of Christ and of God. For a greedy person is an idolater, worshiping the things of this world. So here's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to talk about four violations of what I call the improved golden rule. Four ways that we're not like God. Number one is destructive speech. When our speech is destructive, when our speech is negative, when our speech is gossipy, when our speech is slanderous, that's not like God. You see, the very first creative act of God was to speak the world into existence. God believes that speech has power to create. And the Bible says to us that our speech has that same power. We can speak life into people or we can speak what? Death. Either your speech is going to make the people around you live in a better creation, a better world, or your speech will make them live in a worse world. And so when we begin to to use destructive speech... We're not like God because it brings you to life or death. Now, we all know this. We all have memories because I've I've surveyed you before. 
If I asked you today, could you write down one line of someone who said something to you that you can't get out of your mind that hurt you? Some of us, it might be three decades ago, we still remember it. Or if I asked you this morning, write down one line of someone who really, really encouraged you, you just can't get out of your mind. We could write it, I can tell you a couple of mine, these are just sort of odd little tidbits. When I was a sophomore at University of Alabama, I was 19 years old. There was a local church in town that was looking for a youth minister. I applied for the job, I interviewed for the job. There were two or three other guys who also interviewed for the job, they were all seniors. And I remember being in a room with one of the elders' wives, a dear lady named Marie Sanders, and it came up about this youth ministry job and who had applied. And I still remember to this day when she looked at me, she said, buddy, you're going to get the job. Of course you're going to get the job. You're the man for the job. I, 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 don't, I don't ever forget that. That was just that one little line there. And then I can remember destructive lines, can't you? I remember an older woman at Northport Church who, believe it or not, did not like me. It's hard to imagine, isn't it? And uh, I remember her saying one day to me, you know, you're an okay youth minister, but don't you dare ever think about being a preacher. <laughs> you, you just sort of remember those lines. And sorry, guys, I did it. But um, it, it, it happens. And that's the power of our speech. And that's why our speech can be either godlike or ungodlike. You, you notice in our passage here, at the end of the passage, it says, you're to use uplifting speech so it will give grace to those who hear. Your speech gives grace. That's God. God's speech gives grace. There, again, there's the same rule of thumb. We treat people, even in our speech, the way God's treated us. Can I ask you, is your speech full of grace? All of have a tendency to become negative to become harsh, you notice how many times that word harsh is in this passage? To become critical, to become gossipy. We live in a, a world, we talk about in the political world, the politics of destruction. What do we mean by that? We mean that we put somebody up to run for office and the other party just seeks to destroy them by words and by innuendos and by gossip and by slander. It happens all the time. But it's not just in politics. It happens in all of our lives because we live in such a critically oriented world that we have become good at tearing people down. And if you and I are going to be Christian people, if we're going to be God-like people, one of the first places this can show up is in our speech because we stop the tearing down and we begin the building up. And when you do that, you're being like God. And so what do we need? We need to become great encouragers. That's what this verse is all about. I've learned a lot the last few years about trying to look for the good for people. And let me tell you what's convicted me. It seems like over the last few years, we've had more funerals in this church than at least in my ministry here. And when I have privilege and honor to do someone's funeral, I get to meet with the family. I get to talk to the friends. I get to hear all the things about how this person lived their life, not just here at church, but how they lived their life behind the scenes. And by the time I stand up, I've got more material than I could ever deal with. You find out so much good about people. And then I get to stand up and I get to say it. And here's my conviction. I need to say it before they die. And sometimes, you know what? My eye is way too critical toward people. And I, I see their weaknesses because they got them just like me. And I don't focus on the positive things that I should. And I challenge you. Statistics say it takes 
50 positive comments to make up for one negative. That means, guys, we need to be laying it on. And guys, when you begin to encourage people, you begin to be like God. What did God do the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians? He did nothing but tell us how wonderful we are. Despite the fact we're sinners. And when you begin, guys, to encourage someone and see something good in someone is not to say, I don't see anything bad in you. It's to say, you know what, real change in behavior will happen when I focus on the good instead of the bad. So number one is we need to change our speech. Number two is bitterness. You know, Paul talks about here this terrible cycle of unforgiveness. It starts with bitterness, it goes to rage, it goes to anger, it goes to harsh words, and it finally ends up in slander. This is one of the number one sins in the church today because this is one of the hardest to deal with because we've all been done wrong, right? Forgiveness is such an easy thing to say. It's such a wonderful biblical platitude that we're to forgive each other as Christ has forgiven us. Oh, it sounds so good. Until when? you got to do it. Until somebody has really done you wrong. Maybe it was your spouse, maybe it was your parents, maybe it was a friend, maybe it was the church, maybe it was your boss. But somebody did you wrong. And you're well justified, at least in your mind, of being hurt. And and again, that's okay, but the the question is, what pathway are you going to pick? Are you going to pick the pathway of bitterness? Or are you going to pick the the godlike pathway of forgiveness? Now, let me tell you, to pick the pathway of forgiveness is to be strong. Forgiveness is not for wimpy people. Forgiveness is for strong people. The easy way for all of us is to remain bitter. The sad thing, though, about bitterness, the sad thing about not forgiving that person, no matter how wrong they did you and how justified you are and how you feel, the sad thing about that is you're not really hurting that person. You think by me staying angry about it and bowed up about it and mad about it, I'm getting about it. They don't even know. But you know who is destroying It's destroying you. It's destructive. I I like the person who said, not forgiving someone, keeping bitterness, is like drinking poison and expecting it to kill the other person. It kills you. And guys, we've got such great example of this. Again, here we are. We've got a little lawnmower. We're just following God. The most amazing statement to me in all the Bible is Jesus on the cross hanging between two thieves with spit running down his face and blood out of his veins and Jesus saying to his father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. He's been beaten, he's been mocked, he's been spat upon, he's crucified, a cruel death, and yet he is forgiving the ones who crucified him. And I think to myself, if God can forgive that, what can I not forgive? You know, the Apostle Paul was changed by this. The one who's writing this letter in Acts chapter 7, he sees the stoning of Stephen. And he's there overseeing it, holding the garments. And he hears Stephen say, much like Jesus, God, do not hold this charge against him. You don't think that changed Paul? And you see what Paul learned from that, because Paul has done wrong the rest of his life, but you never read bitterness in Paul. Paul. 
He's beaten. He's talked about, gossiped about, even in the church. He's not a bitter man because he knows that he's been forgiven by God for far worse things than anybody has ever done to him. And guys, we can live lives of forgiveness and get away of the bitterness when we begin to live that way. I don't know how many of you have watched the movie or read the book Unbroken. Uh, It's on Redbox now if you want a nice, cheap movie. But um, I've read the book and watched the movie this weekend. It's an amazing book's better than the movie. The movie's good. But it's about this uh, American serviceman, you know, who shot, up, shot down over the Pacific, you know, and stays days and days just surviving. And finally, though, he's captured by the Japanese. This guy had been an Olympic athlete and an incredible, incredible man. And man, they begin to beat him and persecute him. There was a, a man over the camp called Birdman who for some reason just took it out on this man and, and, and just brought him right to the brink of death over and over. Just would just take a cane and slap him in the face. Oh, it's brutal. It's just brutality upon brutality. But the story that the movie barely touches, but the real story is this. When that man got out and came back to America... He remarried. He lived for a while as a very bitter man. He was very cruel and very difficult for his wife and children. But he went to a Billy Graham crusade, and he heard about Jesus, and he was changed. And later, he went back to Japan to meet the people who had beaten him and his captors and to forgive them. He could find every one of them, but Birdman would not meet with him. And the Japanese people were so blown away by this kind of forgiveness that was not known in their culture, only known because of Jesus, that when they hosted the Olympics, they chose this man to carry the flame. That's what Christianity teaches us. It teaches us to be so godlike that we begin to forgive like God. Let me give you area number three that trips us up, and boy, this one's prevalent. It's sexual sins. I like what the NIV says here, but among you there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality. The word sexual immorality is the Greek word pornonia. It's the word we get pornography from. But really in the Greek language it's a very broad word. It would would include premarital sex, extramarital sex, homosexual sex. I mean, you name it. It It would include a broad range of things. Now we think today that we live in a very perverted culture, and we do. And it's going downhill, right? But it may not be as bad as the Greco-Roman culture they lived in back there when it came to sexual sins. It was absolutely rampant. And so for Paul to write that we need to be different in this area was a great call to be different than culture. I just want to focus just for a moment on just one area of this that's overtaking us, and, and you, you probably know what I'm going to talk about, is pornography. It, we will not know till decades from now what pornography has done. We already know some statistics. I mean, you know, I, if we were all to be honest here today, probably 50% of the people, male and female, in this audience struggle with pornography. At least. That's a, I'm giving a low, low statistic. That's church people, they say. It's too accessible. John talks about the good way we can use our phone. This is one of the bad ways. It's so accessible. By age 16, 90% of girls and guys have viewed pornography. 
One-eighth of all internet searches are to pornographic websites. One-fifth of mobile, one out of five mobile searches on phones go to pornography. And we're beginning to see the destruction. We have seen a 318% increase in infidelity in our country. 318%. Because what it's saying there is you can't look at it, think about it, and not eventually act on it. And in divorce cases today, pornography is mentioned as a reason for divorce in 56% of divorce cases. And that's why Paul says, there ought not even be a hint in your life. And yet so many of us, because this is a private sin that nobody else knows for, we've given ourselves way too much permission to go where we want to go. And Paul says, no, 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 no. There shouldn't be even a hint of this. You say, why is Paul so uptight about this? Why is God so uptight about sex? Let me tell you something. God's not anti-sex. God's pro-sex. It was God's idea. And, And what Paul is saying is, what you've done is you take something beautiful made by God. You know, years ago, Christians, you know, talked about sex like it was a terrible thing. That was a huge mistake. But what, what, what Paul is saying is, you're taking something that was holy, that was set apart for God, to be in a committed married relationship, where it bonds people together in a special way, and literally, biblically, is a picture of the unity of God. Sex is a holy thing. We've made it unholy. It's unlike God the way we've used it. And we're paying the price for it. It's more than just a physical act. It is the unity of body, mind, and soul. And here's crazy if you want an encouraging statistic. That these secular researchers, researching pornography, sex, all these things, have come up with this conclusion. The most satisfying sex is found in married relationships between two committed people who keep themselves for one another. Isn't that crazy? But why should we be surprised? Because God's way is right. And Lord, guys, when we begin to allow ourselves to get into these kind of sexual sins, it messes us up. It keeps us from being godlike. I asked you this morning, who in this audience is struggling with that? I, I guarantee you, there's a lot Let me give you a really easy way to talk about it and confess it this morning. Whatever of these sins Satan's using in your life. Let's go to the fourth one. The fourth one is greed. He says, for a greedy person is an idolater worshiping the things of this world. You know know what the word greed simply means? It means the desire to have more. It's that part of us that's never satisfied. You know what I mean? With pornography, it's the light sight, and that doesn't work long enough. Then you go to the deeper, and then you go worse and worse into it. With alcohol, it's just the first taste, and then, oh, no, no, i got to have more to satisfy me. With drugs, it's the same thing. But, but here, let's say also, greed is not just about evil things. Greed can be about something good. Greed can be taking a good thing and making it a best thing in your life. What greed is, like Paul says here, it's idolatry. It's putting something else in the place of God that doesn't belong there. 
It's when the desires of your heart are more overwhelming toward that next purchase or toward that new car or toward that raise or toward that promotion or toward that win than it is for God. I like Timothy Keller's definition of idolatry. Anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart more than God, anything you seek to give you what only God can give. That's the problem. Maybe you get a tremendous high from your work life. That's okay. I mean, you love, you love the thrill of achievement. But then it crosses over to being a workaholic. And you neglect the things that you really should be loving. Maybe you really love things and you, you like the pleasure of things. The Bible says God's given us all things to enjoy. But you cross that line to it means too much to you. To your life's not fulfilled on that week. You can't make the purchase. And so you've got this, what some people even call a shopping addiction, where you're getting your family more and more in debt because you've got to have the thrill of that. Or maybe it's sports. And sports are a cool thing. But you cross a line that they mean too much to you. You say absolutely absurd things after your team loses is, this is going to ruin my week. Really? In the world we live in, whether my team wins or not, it's going to ruin my week? It's idolatry. I, I challenge all of us. In whatever area that you may be tempted, it could become a person, it could become an achievement. But mostly when we talk about greed, we do think about money. And our society encourages that. We applaud the man who works too many hours to make too much money. We applaud that we can always keep moving up, despite the fact we get further and further into debt and are less and less generous toward other people and less and less generous toward the kingdom of God. You see, guys, that's why this idea of, of giving and the biblical idea of tithing is so important. It's not just because the church needs it, though we do. It's because you need it. You need to declare, in the most difficult place for most of us to declare it, listen to me, listen to me, this, this is Bible truth. You need to declare, in the most difficult place, in your pocketbook, that God comes first. That's what tithing's about. 10% off the top, to God, to say to yourself, I'm not going to become a greedy person. Because let's, let's face it, guys, that's the easiest place to cut. Nobody knows. Let me tell you how God feels about it. Malachi chapter 3, when these people are not tithing the way they are called to, God says, you are robbing me. That's what you're doing. But not only are you robbing God, let me tell you what you're doing. You're hurting yourself because you're letting things, and that's a great indication. If you're not giving weekly, consistently, generously to the work of God, I'm telling you that is a great indication that you are letting other things become more important than the things of God. That's why Paul addresses this. So we've had these four topics here, our speech, our bitterness, Sexual sins and greed. And if you keep reading, Paul says some things to, to just try to shake us up. Look at, look at verse 6, would, would you? Don't be fooled by those who try to excuse these sins. 
For the anger of God will fall on those who disobey him. Pretty straightforward. That's how many of us are trying of either one or many of the sins I've mentioned, you are trying to excuse. I know our culture does. But then here's the positive reinforcement. I love this verse. Verse 10. Carefully determine what pleases the Lord. That's what this is about. It's about pleasing God. In this passage, there are two great contrasts we've seen. We've seen on one hand, when I give myself to these things, I grieve God. I make God sad. On the other hand, we see when I obey God, I actually please Him. Is that not radical? That what you do in your life and what I do in my life has an impact on God? That either you, by your disobedience, by that secret life of sin that you're living... By that bitterness in your heart, by the greed for more and more things and more and more achievements, you are grieving God. He's, he's sad. Now, he's not just sad because you're hurting him. He's sad because he created you. And he wants better for you. You know, you know what sin is? The little word in the Bible is sin is to miss the mark. What is the mark? The mark is we are made in the image of God. We are to be image bearers of God. And anything that's sinful, guys, is not because God's just trying to save you from some fun. It's sinful because it's not like Him. And you'll never enjoy life or the afterlife the way you should until you come to that determination and stop grieving God and you start pleasing God. So this morning, you know, we've talked about the who and the what and the, the how. Well, let's, let's go. There's, there's one more question one more question that we need to, one more question that's left. And that's the when. When are we going to wake up and follow God? Now, I know as we go through these four things, I'd love to say nobody in here struggles with these things. But it would be an absolute lie. We all struggle with something, don't we? And you know, what really I love about this passage is we're reading something written 2,000 years ago. But I don't think there could be anything more appropriate than it is today. The same things that Paul and the people around him struggled with are the same things that we're struggling with. The th- same things Satan used to pull them away from God and God-likeness are the same things doing this, this to us. That's why he concludes, if you read further in the passage, wake up from your sleep, climb out of your coffins. Christ will show you the light. How many of us are just sleepwalking? We've been practicing these things forever, and we need to wake up. I love the the image. Climb out of your coffin. Because to continue to live in these sinful things is to slowly but surely die. It's destructive. To get out of these is to live. So this morning, I want to give you an opportunity to be prayed for about this. Without you having to write it for the whole church to hear. I want to call up um, some of our shepherds. If their wives are with them, we'd love them to come, Doug. In just a few moments, we're going to start to sing. And if you need to to talk about this, then just, just come up to one of these couples or men and here, let me pay close attention to what I'm going to say. When you, when you come up here, just come up and give them your name. Sometimes we all go blank in public. So give them your name and tell them what you need to pray about. Everything you're going to say here is going to be confidential. 
Maybe your speech is just not at all what it ought to be. Or maybe you're dealing with some of these sexual sins. Or maybe you really are greedy and it's shown up in your life. Or maybe you're just really, really becoming more and more bitter. And you're drinking the poison. And it's hurting you. I don't know anything that would be better for you than to come up to one of these couples and just say, here's my name, here's my problem. Would you right now, before I get out of this building, pray for me? Because let's show our picture one more time. I love this picture, if you would. I love the picture up here. Can you imagine the pleasure in Micah Harris watching his little boy? That's one of the great moments in life. And let me tell you, what you could do with the next few minutes of repenting and confessing your sin could bring pleasure to your Heavenly Father. But even beyond that, I guarantee you that little boy, Max, he has incredible pleasure following his daddy. And I'm telling you this morning, that if you'll turn your back on sin and turn to God, not only will it bring pleasure to God, it'll bring a whole lot more pleasure to you than any of these things you're struggling with. And so we're just going to sing, and while we sing, just come up and pray and confess. Give your name and be prayed over before you leave this building. These things are so common. Don't be embarrassed to come forward. Probably everybody in this room struggles with one of these things or maybe something else. And that's why we're here, to help each other. So let's sing. If you need to come there, if you want to write something with the whole church, come meet me. But let's sing together.